1: Hello and welcome to the first ever Partly Political Broadcast podcast, or the Parpol Bro Pod, which no one will ever call it ever. I'm and Duyeb, because sometimes names work like that. And thank you so much for downloading this podcast. Uh, This is going to be number one of hopefully many, many regular satirical podcasts, where I'm going to be looking back at the past week of UK political news. And I'm going to ask really important questions like... Rather than David Cameron demand that Muslim women learn English or be deported, wouldn't it be far more in line with British values for anyone who doesn't speak the language of the country they live in to just shout and point at things they want? This week, Home Secretary Theresa May, a woman who's constantly haunted by all those Dalmatians she's killed, has been urged to rethink her latest policy. It states that anyone from a non-EU country living in the UK must earn over 35 grand a year or they'll be denied settlement. And you can see why people have a problem with that. Uh, I mean, for a start, there's the possibility that the UK might leave the EU after the referendum, and then there's the fact that the average wage in the UK is only 26500 thousand a year. So, if this policy comes in, that could be most of the population having to piss off and leave. On Monday, MPs in the House of Commons debated whether or not to ban bag of bluster with a wig on it Donald Trump from entering the UK. He'd made incredibly inflammatory comments about banning Muslims from entering America and a petition had kicked off with over half a million signatures saying that in retaliation we in the UK must ban him from coming here. Of course, it's silly discriminating against someone because they want to discriminate against someone, that's just us being as bad as them. And what we should really do is welcome Trump to the UK and then argue and debate with him and make him see just how wrong he is on television debate shows and chat shows and panel shows and all make fun of him and mock him and laugh at just how stupid, stupid, stupid he is. That would definitely, definitely work. Or, oh God, he could become London Mayor, couldn't he? And in an interview with The Independent... Labour leader and fashion inspiration for geography teachers everywhere, Jeremy Corbyn, made yet another faux pas turning even more supporters against him. This time, he upset people by saying that his pet cat doesn't have a name. He just refers to him as El Gato, which is Spanish for cat. As we all know, Spanish cats something something threat to something bring down democracy something. But honestly though, How can you not name a cat? There's so many good names for cats. I mean, Brad Kitt, J.R.R. Tolkien, Derek. It is endless. Come on, Jezza, you could have at least gone for Chairman Meow. Your home can be many, many things. Wherever you lay your hat on the range, or wherever your heart is, though you are advised to take that with you even when you pop out for a snack. Thanks to a conservative majority vote of 312 to 219 against, as of January the 12th of this year, landlords of rented homes in Britain no longer have to ensure that they're suitable for human habitation. I know that's what you've all been waiting for, right? you would be looking at the dire housing situation, saying the only thing that would really help all of this is if there were entire homes that can't actually have any human beings in at all. Or they can, but only if they're budding biologists who can't wait to spend over the odds to find a new strain of penicillin. The very least you'd expect from a home is that you can live in it. Otherwise, it's a shed. Or the beginnings of a horror story. Or, as I've been told several times, M&M World, and no, not even if I bring a sleeping bag. As I often say, it's not a housing bubble, because bubbles are meant to be fun. Back in October, David Cameron pledged to turn Generation Rent into Generation Buy, although it does now seem that he was spelling that B-Y-E. In London, you now need a salary of £140,000 a year just to buy an averagely priced flat. And with affordable housing now meaning it's still 80% of market value, the term does just seem to mean weekend sale price for millionaires. The Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors says house prices will rise up to 25% in the next five years, which means right now there's probably a house earning more than you and it doesn't even have to commute anywhere or make small talk with boring Chris by the water cooler. So generation rent is definitely going to stick around, and with rent increasing by 4.6% in the last year, it would be really helpful if landlords at least had the incentive to make sure the homes they let out didn't look like an HR Geiger nightmare but now, thanks to the entirely Conservative majority, they won't have to. It'd be churlish to say there was a more sinister reason behind this Tory vote without any evidence, but luckily there's tons of evidence, and all that evidence says that 39% of Tory MPs are also landlords. Surprise! Which explains why they keep banging on about being the party of home ownership. David Cameron reportedly has earned over £500,000 since 2010 by renting out his luxury home in Notting Hill. Well, he does believe in working hard, and there's nothing more hardworking than letting someone else pay you extortion amounts of money to live in a place you already own. Oh, I feel tired just imagining it, all that sitting and not thinking about it that you'd have to do. Puh. of SNP MPs and 22% of Labour MPs are also landlords, and you start to wonder if Parliament is ever going to provide policies for proper tenants' rights if there's so much personal interest at stake. Instead, you could end up finding the only place left to rent in the entire country is a glorified Portaloo, and to make it far, far worse, you have to call David Cameron just to see if you can put a picture up. Ugh. Recently, Dave said he was worried his children will struggle to get on the property ladder, and I guess he could well be right. But only because by the time they're adults, the ladder will be completely and utterly gone, and instead, there will just be a skypad that's accessed only by private helicopter. Doctors. Everyone loves doctors, don't they? You know, except for Doom, Death and Fox. But apart from those three, doctors are a proper staple of society. Selflessly saving lives and helping to start basic joke formats. You know, if any of you have ever tried to ask Google to diagnose a health problem, you'll know that the opinion of a professional doctor is an irreplaceable, trusted and important thing. Which is why it seems really odd that when it comes to how doctors should do their job, the Department of Health seem to prefer their own facts, figures and unfun fan fiction to the views of the British Medical Association. Last week, the first UK junior doctor's strike for 40 years took place. After months of attempted negotiations with the Department of Health and everyone's least favourite startled Stoat impersonator, Jeremy Hunt, 98% of the BMA's members voted to take action against proposed contract changes. Surely, if that many doctors prescribe a solution, it can't be wrong. Around 16,000 doctors are reported to have protested all over the country, and the next strike is set to be for 48 hours on January 26th, unless some sort of agreement can be made. So, what does the proposed contract mean? Are patients actually at risk if junior doctors go on strike? And most importantly, just what exactly is a junior doctor? Is it like a Muppet Baby, you know, where it's like a tiny child version of a doctor who has a toy stethoscope and says really cute things like, I prescribe more jelly beans. Well, who better to answer these questions and explain exactly what The Strike is all about than Keir Shields, a man who is such a professional junior doctor that he featured on BBC Three's Junior Doctors, Your Life in Their Hands. Keir is currently working as a paediatric registrar at Queen's Hospital, Rumford, and he very kindly spoke to me on one of his rare days off. This was recorded over an occasionally dodgy Skype line, so very sorry for any weird noises. I promise it's not my stomach. I'm going to ask you a really stupid question, but what is a, a junior doctor? Because it's not just like a sort of, you know, a child version of a normal doctor, is it?
2: No, I, I don't think that is a stupid question, actually, because I think it, it's, it's oddly um, something that a lot of people don't realise the, the answer to. Because um, junior doctor is a term that is simply used to mean any doctor at all who is not at the highest level of seniority possible, which is mm-hmm. consultant. It's an umbrella term that's used to include um, several grades of doctors. So what we would call foundation level doctors who are in the first two years of clinical practice, uh, senior house officers who are in the, the following two to three years of practice. And then junior and senior registrars all together who are all on this kind of conveyor belt. Um, trying to become specialists, consultants, or or GPs, and right. so anybody who's under kind of one of those headings is under the umbrella term of of junior doctors or, or kind of doctors in training placements, which so, is different from being a student.
1: Yes, yes. Well, that's what I was going to say. And and because I mean, you've you've been working for years, haven't you, as a doctor?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I'm I've been working for seven years now as as a doctor. Um, And I'm a a, a paediatric registrar, which means that it's it's my job to take the baby that's been born three months prematurely and put them on whatever sort of life supporting equipment that they need in order to try and maintain their life while their their body is kind of growing into that of a normal baby. That's that's kind of my job.
1: Right, which is uh, an incredibly important job, and, and probably quite stressful at times. I would presume.
2: Yes, yes, it is. Especially at when kind of things happen at, at four o'clock in the morning, and uh, you know, there's there's not necessarily the, the the volume of people around to help you that there is during the day.
1: Sure. Well, th- well that was the next thing I was going to ask. Is that you're... Your current working hours, and I mean, I follow you on Twitter and I see that mm-hmm. you, you don't tweet at work, but you do often say, I've got the night shift tonight, or yeah. I, I see that you post things like that uh, before you go to work. Uh, yeah, so, so you do work all sorts of, you, you work weekends and evenings already. That's
2: right. You? So I, I work uh, two weekends every seven. Right. And uh, one of those weekends every seven will be from 8.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night. And the other weekend out of those seven will be eight thirty at night until nine thirty in the morning. Right. So two two weekends out of every seven, um, I am one of two doctors who are kind of on call for uh, for for pediatrics in my hospital, and that's because there are seven people on the rotor, and right. we we just kind of run through a rolling program so that everybody has to cover the weekends um at some point
1: okay and and just two doctors for that whole period i mean does that how many sort of patients are you uh, dealing with in that time i'm guessing it can range from few to to many
2: so there'll be there'll be up to 30 patients on the uh ward itself and then obviously um depending on whether you're kind of a pediatrician who's who's dealing with uh children and uh, and and patients in A&E or whether you're dealing with with babies and deliveries on the neonatal unit you know you'll have um, you'll have patients who who aren't actually on your ward but are in another department as well so yeah some somewhere between 20 and 40 patients uh, a night right so that's quite that's quite a lot for just two people to well, be as in charge I'm, of the... yeah so so there won't be two Doctors. There will be two doctors at my level, which is right. registrar, and there'll also be senior house officers who are kind of slightly more junior trainee doctors um, who will be there as well. So there'll be right. there'll be three people looking after those patients. Right. But uh, but I would be the the only person at my level, and I would be the most senior person kind of on the floor right. um, looking after them. Yeah.
1: Sure. Wow. Okay. So. What I wanted to ask you about um, is this new junior doctor contract, which mm-hmm. seems to be uh, based partly on Jeremy Hunt assuming that there's no weekend cover <laughs> at all in hospitals. I've been to a hospital on a weekend; I was pretty sure it was open, and yes. people were there.
2: Um, you never just see the, the the kind of caretaker sweeping behind the door, just shaking his head at people <laughs> trying to trying to get in. Do you? Um, no, there's
1: never a little sign on the on the glass door saying "closed" back on yeah. Monday.
2: Um, First staff training, that would be lovely. Yeah,
1: that, that would be nice, wouldn't it?
2: I think, uh, I think the problem is that there are lots of small issues uh, mm. under this contract um, that, that don't come under one big heading. So it's it's really difficult to kind of say, this is about not being paid enough or this is sure. about not being valued. Sure. So... Um, the, the junior doctor's contract at the, uh, the moment is, is up for negotiation, and that kind of determines our pay and conditions. And at the moment, we are paid a, a certain salary, mm. um, which is for our Monday to Friday, seven in the morning to seven in the evening work. Right. And any hours that we do on top of that, weekends, night shifts, uh, late evenings, are kind of totaled up. And the, the powers that be work out what proportion of our time at work is social time
0: sure. and what
2: proportion is antisocial time. And, and based on that, we get a supplement on top of our basic salary. So okay. I work a very antisocial rota. My basic salary for sticking babies on life support machines is £36,000 a year. Right. And on top of that, because I work lots of antisocial hours, I get an additional 40%. Right. Okay. okay? okay. So that takes my, my my salary up. Now, what he wants to do is he wants to remove this banding process entirely, mm-hmm. redefine what normal working hours are to 7 in the morning to 10 p.m., Monday to Saturday. Right, because that's
1: what normal people work all the time, yeah. obviously. and then
2: yeah. he wants to kind of uh, give us additional payments based on the number of shifts outside of those or the hours of the shifts that we're working outside those seven till ten Monday to Saturday. Sure. Now that that's part of it. Um the the other part of it is that at the moment doctors don't just work the hours that they're roted for. Um if if it hits five o'clock and you're halfway through an operation, you can't just, you don't just stop down yeah. and <laughs> <then> <laughs> come back and and pick it up the following morning. Yeah. Um and so there is a, a system in place to ensure that regardless of how many hours you are roted for, you are paid for the number of hours that you actually work.
1: Yeah, which, so which if, to be if, fair, if, is perfectly reasonable, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> that's, absolutely. that's
2: what you should do.
1: That's what most people would expect in exactly. their normal day to day jobs. And that's, really. and that's yeah.
2: important as, as safeguards because if you're working as an anaesthetist and a surgeon, say, and you can get through six big operations a day and you're always being asked to do eight operations a day then you can turn around to the hospital and say hang on you're giving me an amount of work that is not compatible with my rota um, these are all sick people so obviously I'm going to look after them but mm. I am working a different number of hours from the hours that you say I am and there's a compensation mechanism in place for that sure um, that penalizes hospitals for overworking you so they have to pay a financial penalty if they get you to to work ridiculous hours right. or if somebody phones in sick for the night shift and you're asked to 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 work the, through the night for no extra money you know you there is a compensation mechanism for that right that entire system is under threat um right. and And Jeremy Hunt says that he's going to be asking us to work fewer hours under the contract, but it's not about the number of hours that you are roted to work. It's about the number of hours that you have to work.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he can't state that it's fewer hours and then, you know you wouldn't be able to specify that those are fewer hours each time when you don't know how many patients you're getting in or what the situations are, exactly. I presume. So exactly. that's an impossible thing to be able to yeah. state. So, right. so
2: what he's trying to say in the contract is that we don't want doctors working long hours because you get tired, so we're going to rotate you for fewer hours. And what we're saying is that's all very well, but if our hospital asks us to work beyond those hours, what incentive is there for the hospital not to do that? Sure. Uh, at the moment, he's uh, not come up with a safe enough answer for for right. our, you know, for 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 our d- compliance with this new contract.
1: And I mean, is there is there a, a a safe enough answer that you would prefer? Is there one that 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 you would like, or members of the BMA would be aiming for? I mean, because part of me listening to you talk then, part of me thinks isn't a bigger issue here—the overall issue that the NHS could do with more funding in order to have more doctors and more staff in the first
2: place (laughs) yes i know and and the 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 thing is that the bma has kind of tried to be reasonable in that you know the 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 bma's demands are not instantly to have um you know 50 new doctors in every hospital because because that's that's not possible um and so what the bma has said is that we we as a, a kind of group of doctors we understand that there's not a lot of money out there yeah and 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 that the, the cost of this new contract should be neutral we're not asking for more money um, we're not asking for, for kind of higher salary bills to be paid to more doctors yeah we, we, we get that it is a difficult situation and yes we do want more resources and we do want more doctors and we do need more nurses and sonographers and occupational therapists and physiotherapists and pharmacists and porters and cleaners and laboratory staff working at the weekends and and people you know working in kind of the staff canteen at night would be a nice thing yeah you can actually eat but but you know that's that's a luxury um so, so we we're we're at a point where we've we've kind of tried to say, look, we we understand that the reasonable demand of let's have some more staff, please, is actually not affordable. Right. What we just don't want is to be asked to s- spread a five day working week, seven till seven, over six days, seven till ten, because that's going to mean that. You know, either we're going to be working more hours yeah. or there are going to be fewer of us on the shop floor at any one and either time. either way, that's going to yeah. be
1: incredibly and stressful same. for yeah. you and not make your job any easier. And, 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 and as you say, it's not particularly safeguarding patients
2: either if you're so. overworked and overtired yes. in any way. So, so we, I, don't th- I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to be opposed to. I just think that the problem is that explaining it actually takes more than a five word soundbite. Uh, the, the, the tragedy of it is that what he is aiming to do of kind of improve the amount of service that is available at the weekend is something that doctors have been going on about for ages. We, we'd right. love it if we right. had a better, a better service at the weekend. But but this, this kind of mantra of um, seven-day service, seven-day service, seven-day service is, is just so demeaning to those of us who work seven days a week yeah because it's assuming
1: Um, that you're not there i mean (laughs) i do wonder if he's if i mean i I sometimes wonder if jane hunt's ever been in a hospital at all but i i definitely wonder if he's ever been in on a weekend it's
0: life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry
1: Um, despite yeah. people pointing out that this is not true, but I mean, he's he similarly also pointed out that that more people are likely to die on a weekend, or you know, uh, rates of people dying from yeah, strokes are on the weekend. But
2: another, this is another thing that kind of kind of starts starts annoying doctors because again, you are more likely to die at a weekend is is a a, a pithy single sentence sound bite, yeah, um, that 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 takes you know minutes of explanation to to undo. Um, the, the, the fact is that if you are admitted to hospital on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday or Monday, yeah. um, you have a higher 30-day mortality likelihood than if you are admitted on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Right. And uh, there, there are some reasons for that that are uh, possibly to do with the, the amount of investigations and skill sets that are available at the weekend, possibly. Sure. For example, that if you're, um, if you're brought into to hospital on a, uh, on a Friday because mm. your appendix has burst, you don't have to wait till Monday to get your operation. You get your operation there and then. Yeah. Um, so the th- sort of things that, that people present with that are life-threatening seven days a week get treated and dealt with seven days a week. Yeah. Now, if you turned up to hospital on uh, a Saturday with a, let, I don't know, let's, let's say you'd, you'd, you'd kind of hit your, your, your finger with a, a hammer and your, your, your fingernail was falling off and you had a nasty that, nail bed. That is my through. standard weekend yeah. Uh, accident, yeah. Exactly. It's so. <laughs> that, that sort of DIY accident. Yeah. It's such a routine thing that can be put right on a routine list that you wouldn't admit that patient on a Saturday. You'll wait till Monday. So all of the things that can kill you still come into hospital on a Saturday and all of the things that can't kill you wait till Monday. So when right. you look at the proportion of people coming in on a Saturday who die versus the proportion of people who come in on a Monday who die, the proportion is higher, not because the, um, the, the, the skill set and the people aren't around. It's because it's not diluted by all of the routine stuff that would also come in on a weekday. Sure, sure. And that's that's the thing that's very difficult to explain to people in kind of a, a single sentence. Yeah, of Whereas course. Whereas if you come if you are admitted to hospital on a Saturday, you're more likely to die, is just really easy to believe and really easy to understand. Yeah. Sorry, so, I'm very angry now. I'm really, yeah, no, I can, I can hear angry. it in your voice. I can hear it in your voice. It's um, and, and, but, and the but don't blame we're talking about because... really important numbers as well because we're talking about the difference between one percent and one point two percent, which is billed by Jeremy Hunt as a twenty percent increase. Yeah, which because is... it is. Yeah, but I mean, you notice when they put up interest rates, interest rates never go up by a hundred percent from point two five to point five percent. Right. They got by a quarter of 1%. And it, it's all about the way that numbers are used descriptively in order to push forward a, um, you know, a political agenda, which is, which is just unfair. And obviously now there's
1: lots of people that might need to go into hospital on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday that haven't been going in
2: because yes. they fear I mean, that the they great, won't the get great seen. The danger or- about this uh, is that at, at the moment it's not true. Um, the, the real worry is that if if people start holding on to their symptoms over the weekend until they only go to hospital at the weekend when they're in absolute extreme uh, situations, then that statistic is going to start becoming true. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and we'll end up in a in a situation where, unfortunately, uh, the the kind of the political mantra ends up creating the truth rather than vice versa.
1: It'd be interesting to see how Jeremy Hunt deals with, say, lots of people who are holding off going on the
2: weekend all dying on a Tuesday and uh, <laughs> suddenly changing the statistics. Well, of course, the, the most of the, that. The day of the week that you're most likely to die in a hospital is actually a Wednesday. A Wednesday. Right, OK. But okay. That's, that's when you're most likely to die. It's not when you're most likely to be admitted and kind of then die. It's just a, a quirk of statistics that, of course. Um, that, you know, that that, that, that is true.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, that's a good tip. Anyway, just uh, so yeah. what, what's going to happen we'll now to is once once this podcast goes out, everyone yeah. will t- flood you on weekends and not mm-hmm. turn up on a Wednesday, and yes. we'll have a, we'll have a similar uh, seesaw like problem. Yeah. There's not a definite solution at the moment, mm. and I suppose that uh, as we as we know that the problem is Jeremy Hunt's not even really sitting around the table and, and talking about this. Um, I saw today that he's saying that he may just push ahead. With his contract without further talks, he's calling it the nuclear
2: option, which I, yeah, yeah, is which, a worrying which, phrase which just, for. Well, it just undermines under yeah. the 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 need for any negotiations at all. I mean, if you're going to sit around a table and say, "I've got the power to push this through anyway," and just yeah. keep saying that until until somebody bends over, then you know our our options are kind of suck it up, moan and suck it up. Yeah, or try to do something about it, and and yeah. unfortunately, when, when somebody's saying we'll we'll just do this anyway, and you think it's unsafe, the only option that you've got is is kind of our nuclear option, which is to to stand outside the hospital and refuse to go into work. There are three uh, strikes that have been scheduled. One, right. which was a, uh, a a kind of emergency cover only, yes. uh, on yes. a Tuesday. Which, of course, because because there are more uh, people in the hospital on a Tuesday anyway, it's a, it's a better than weekend service on right. a Tuesday was was our first of our, our first port of call, you know, where people were still able to get in touch with social workers and get echocardiograms and all, all sorts. Um, the next stage is to to do that over a longer period. So emergency cover only on a on a Wednesday and Thursday right. together. And then after that, uh, um, February the 10th, the idea that no junior doctors will be at work. But, of course, all of the uh, staff grade doctors and consultants will still be in right. work.
1: So. so at no point, I mean, again, to to follow along the lines of headlines, at no point are patients particularly uh, are under risk from a strike because there will be cover
2: at all you know there's always emergency
1: cover or there's they always may end staff up doctors. having
2: their blood test taken by somebody who hasn't physically done a blood test for five years right okay uh, but who has done hundreds thousands if not tens of thousands of them before in their lifetime sure and not going to be in a situation where the the only person in the hospital who who could have treated them is not there to treat them Right. Okay. You know, there yeah. will be neurologists and neurologists and pathologists and dermatologists and plastic surgeons and neurosurgeons and A and E specialists and anaesthetists in the hospital working and making people better. There just won't be any junior doctors sure. chilling in the paperwork after them.
1: Right. Okay. So the paper, the paperwork may be slightly delayed at
2: worst. That's yes. the but right, the second really not... still be in. Right. Okay. I mean, so, like, so even then, <laughs> it's so not... it, it is. It is going to be. Uh, a better-staffed hospital than it would be on a general Saturday. Right. Now, if if Jeremy Hunt feels that a staffing level of three times what is usually there on a weekend is dangerous, then he needs to sort out uh, a lot more than than simply weekend cover um, by spreading the current number of doctors thinner.
1: Yeah, because he'll need sort of three times the amount for every day of the week. Mm. which returns to the point of underfunding and understaffing
2: in the first place. And then, of course, he's got the temerity to tell us that we're getting a pay rise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's giving us a pay rise, but we're going to be paid the same amount of money. With... The tragedy of it all, all is, though, that actually, as, as much as I don't like the way he's going about this, mm. I actually think that what he is doing, what he's trying to do, is, is not born out of viciousness or, or kind of, you know, um, malice or uh, a, a determination to privatise the health service. Um, I genuinely think he he wants to do something good but he's just doing it in the most ham-fisted and, and kind of um, authoritarian way possible. I think his aims are relatively noble, but he's just going right. about it completely the wrong way.
1: Right, but if they were really noble, surely he'd seek proper uh, advice and listen to what every, or what the, the professionals in, yeah, I in think, the job are saying. And therefore, I think
2: the problem is that the Conservative Party in particular is used to dealing with um, kind of union led um, kind of in, industrial actions in a certain way, sometimes because they've been reasonable, sometimes because they've been unreasonable, sometimes because the action's been quite militant. And as such, kind of any union dispute has got this this reputation within the Conservative administration that it, it has to be pushed down and that this is the new miners' strike. They don't see the BMA for what it is. Um, up until six months ago there is no profession that had more contempt for its trade union than medics. There was no more conservative profession, no more anti union profession than than medics. And it's just completely turned us around, this this you know yeah, because CMA have actually been representing us um very well and very fairly. Fantastic. So is that why because there's
1: I think I read it's 153,000 BMA members, but not everyone has yet joined. Is that, you know, it's so,
2: not there, supposedly... I mean, there's, there's, the, the problem is that obviously there are lots of BMA members who are not junior doctors. There are BMA sure. members who are consultants, who are staff grade doctors, who are, who are medical students. Um, and there will be lots of doctors as well who are not BMA members. Now, it's not like teaching where there are multiple unions that you can be part of and you can kind of stick your uh, your colours to a, a particular kind of political style there right. is it's only the BMA that represents doctors okay um and so far people have either been members or not been members but but you know membership has has increased hugely over the last 6 months apparently
1: that's interesting because i mean it's clearly people are worried i mean i i uh, i remember reports last year sort of saying how many young doctors are kind of choosing to work abroad instead mm and are leaving um so there's obviously i mean uh, and i know this has been felt for a few years now this this worry about what is happening to the sort of nhs and the, the mm. general structure uh, structure of staffing and things um <laughs> is i mean i suppose worst case scenario if hunt does just push this through what do you think might happen or what do you think the the feeling is going to be
2: i don't know i think it's going to very much depend on which sort of specialty you're in okay. um there are some there are some specialties like say uh pathology microbiology clinical biochemistry dermatology where some people will probably suck up a little bit more uh sure. weekends work for a little bit of uh extra money um, sure, but i'm
1: guessing they're not people that are already working weekends yeah, and late hours anyway and right.
2: yeah. um, people who are in intensive care Uh, neonatology A&E, who are already working very antisocial hours, who are going to see their antisocial, well, their hours probably unchanged, but their remuneration for those hours go down because they're no longer considered antisocial. Because uh, if you finish work at one o'clock in the morning, that's considered a day shift by the government. Um, <laughs> it's, um,
1: it's just absolutely crazy. I mean, to be fair, I'm a stand-up. That probably is my day shift. But for most other people, <laughs> that's uh, what a ludicrous idea, isn't it? Um, um, yeah,
2: yeah. So, so the the you know the, the government feels that in unless you're working um, for for three consecutive hours past eleven o'clock at night, you can't classify that as a a night shift so if you finish at one o'clock in the morning um you're officially doing just a normal day shift um so it it, it, it's all of this sort of petty little stuff that actually all all mounts up to uh, a feeling of uh just just not being valued really um and certainly i i've done jobs where i've been working every other weekend for no extra pay than i've got now working Two out of seven weekends. Hmm. Um, the system does need to change, but I think it just needs to change in a, a bit more of a, um, a bit more of a positive way, really.
1: With all the kind of symptoms that Jeremy Hunt has been uh, expressing with his. Uh unable to communicate with people, uh, his inability to hear various things, what sort of diagnosis would you give him for his condition? Well
2: that's that's a very interesting question. I mean it 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 is if if you want a perfect example of how professional um doctors are as a body, there are fifty thousand people who think that uh, Jeremy Hunt is, is approaching this in a, in, a, in a very bizarre and illogical way. Uh, it only takes two doctors to section somebody. and <laughs> None of us have. None of us have sectioned Jeremy Hunt. Um, oh. and, and that is a, a hallmark of our professionalism, that it only takes two out of the 50,000 of us to do it. And, yep. and yet we haven't done that.
1: Mega thanks to Keir Shields, and if you'd like more insights from him, Keir is on Twitter at Keir Shields, that's K-E-I-R-S-H-I-E-L-S, or at his website www.keirshields.com. Since I spoke to Keir last week, David Cameron has also backed Jeremy Hunt's comments on patient care at weekends and strike risks to patients, even though, as Keir said himself, they are nonsense. I almost wonder if junior doctors might have a better chance if they too invent their own fiction and stick to it. Such as saying if the government doesn't start respecting their profession, they'll all vanish except one of them, and Jeremy Hunt will have to hope that his confidence in homeopathy means everyone that one doctor touches will retain a faint memory of how to do surgery. There have also been rumours that Jeremy Hunt will be sacked in the next reshuffle, which would be great, but these same rumours suggest he could be replaced by Boris Johnson, and that's worrying, because the only real medical experience Boris has is watching an ambulance cart away that child that he rugby tackled. Trident, the weapon of Neptune, the god of the sea and also the UK's nuclear weapon-carrying submarines. Which, like Neptune's three-pronged stick, are exceedingly out of date, but somehow still seem to be poking the Labour Party right where it hurts, and cause an awful lot of infighting. Speaking to Andrew Marr last Sunday, Jeremy Corbyn slightly changed his completely anti-Trident stance by saying that he would deploy new Vanguard submarines, just without the nuclear warheads attached. Now. Before I continue, I'd like to point out that personally, I see no point in renewing the UK's four Trident submarines. Aside from Corbyn's main reason for his statement, which was to keep people in their jobs, I can't see an obvious argument for us to still have them. I mean, firstly, there's the cost. Renewing the Trident programme could cost anywhere between £20 billion and £100 billion, which instead of whacking great weapons, critics say could be used to fund, amongst other things, A&E departments for 40 years, or to employ 150,000 new nurses, or build 1.5 million affordable homes or 30,000 new primary schools. You try fitting that lot in a submarine, I've seen DAS boot, it'd get pretty cramped pretty damn quickly. Then there's whether or not we actually need them anymore. The Ministry of Defence say that Trident is still a nuclear deterrent because its very existence stops us being attacked by other countries' nuclear weapons. Even though, if we were fired on, our nukes wouldn't just cancel out their nukes. It doesn't work like that. Instead, we'd all die and then our trident nukes would fire and kill other people and then more people would be dead. So it's not really deterring anything, just making more of a mess. It's a bit like me being sent my tax bill, paying it and then afterwards killing a tax collector as a deterrent. As of last year we had 225 nuclear weapons which is an awful lot considering how many people one can kill. But the USA have 8,000 and Russia have 7,300 so if worse came to worst and Putin got angry or say Donald Trump hit a red button because he thought it looked shiny, ours really won't do much help to save us. Which is a mute point anyway because our weapons are serviced in America so we need them on our side to ensure it's all working fine in the first place. There's currently 25 non-nuclear NATO states and many, many other countries around the world without them, and they don't seem hugely threatened. The UK has signed the International Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, which also means we are meant to negotiate in good faith towards the complete disarmament of nuclear weapons around the world. I suppose we have good faith that it is a fairly vague treaty, and if anyone really complains, we can just blow them up, yeah? Some say Trident is pointless now, as it could be rendered completely obsolete by hackers, or underwater drones, or the Terminator. Sorry, I got a bit carried away. Um, it's just that they're not really of much use against modern threats like cyber or terror attacks, and so ultimately, aside from giving a load of fish a conversational starting point, what is the use? But it would mean, if we scrapped Trident, that 15,000 jobs would be lost. And at the moment, the country just doesn't have the infrastructure to support those workers in other industries, even though it would be great for their skills to be used for non-weapons methods. So, it's not an easy decision. Unless, of course, you really like big bloody weapons and you don't like hospitals. Though I suppose one point of view usually leads to the other. But still, Jeremy Corbyn trying to please everyone by having the subs without weapons seems completely and utterly bonkers when that is all the submarines are for. Better to actually renew them, or save money and not have them at all. You know, you wouldn't have a cob without the corn on it, would you? I mean, you might say that is a rubbish analogy, Tiernan, but I did nearly choke on sweet corn once, so it can be pretty dangerous stuff. Sadly, it looks like Trident will remain a sitting duck in the water, just wasting money for the near future. The only thing it's threatening to blow up right now is further tensions amongst Labour Party members that is the end of this week's partly political broadcast thank you very much once again for downloading this was the very first episode and so would really like this to become a regular thing. Uh, If you have any thoughts on what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it, should we have more of things, less of things, should we scrap the entire show, could we release just one hour of piercing silence, anything like that, please drop us a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at at ParPoleBro. Uh, please do let us know, uh, as all that kind of stuff is incredibly useful. I also edit this entire show myself and haven't really got a clue what I'm doing, so if you have any tips on that, send them over. Uh, before I go, I'd like to give a big thanks to Keir Shields, who was our guest for today's show, and wish him all the best of luck with the further junior doctors' strikes and negotiations. Uh, I'd like to thank my brother, the last sceptic, for letting me totally use all his music uh, throughout the podcast, as I will continue to do so for the next few shows Uh, James Hingley for managing to get this up on the website in time and Stuart Goldsmith and the Comedians Comedian podcast which you should listen to if you don't it is brilliant uh, for giving me tons and tons of tips on how to do this Uh, and lastly a big thank you to all the politicians of the UK for regularly providing absolutely ridiculous fodder which makes this job an awful lot easier thanks very much see you next time